0: We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by a couple of our regular commentators from New News Media, those being Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And Edward White of the News Lens. Good evening. And tonight we'll be discussing the KMT's refusal to pay compensation for selling properties allegedly appropriated from the Japanese colonial government, the launch of a Reporters Without Borders bureau in Taipei, the upcoming University ad, and the pending launch of a satellite developed and made entirely here in Taiwan. But we'll begin with the recent ill-tempered and ugly scenes in the Legislative UN that have been beamed by cable news channels to televisions around the world. We've had hair pulling, punching, lots of pushing and shoving, a whole heap of verbal abuse, air horns and even balloons filled with water. Now fights in the legislature are of course certainly not new to Taiwan and in 1995 the Legislative UN was awarded the Ig Nobel Peace Prize for, and I quote from the citation, demonstrating that politicians gain more by punching kicking and gouging each other than by waging war against other nations however the recent violence has been pretty much a daily occurrence for the past weeks and many are now arguing that it's becoming a bit of a national embarrassment brian embarrassed or not uh, well, I think I've just gotten used to it as a fact
1: of life. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the ignoble peace prize because, you know, I was, I was quite surprised to discover when I was, discovered the, when, I, when I learned about the ignoble peace prize that, you know, the legislative brand had won that. Um, I mean, it's odd because, you know, once in a while you do get this phenomenon of, you know, international media discovering that, you know, Taiwan's legislature likes to, you know, beat each other up. And this happens over and over again. But this time I think is, uh, it's surprising that, you know, it's caused such public discussion in a way that it hasn't happened in the past.
0: I think a lot of that is because it's been going on for so long. It wasn't oh. just... One day uh-huh. it just went on and on and on and on and on, and didn't seem to stop
1: uh uh-huh. yeah that is that is what seems to have led to you know further discussion of the issue um you know there's talk about why Taiwan's legislature lacks a collegial spirit, you know you don't see the opposing lawmaker as your colleague but as you know an enemy that you might be you know engaged in fighting with, and you know I think that that does you know lead to some questioning within uh, society about you know where Taiwan differs from you know other parliaments in which this doesn't seem to happen i mean it does, but you know not as often obviously.
0: The Korean Parliament, of course, is also renowned mm-hmm, that's for right. throwing, throwing punches. But, of course, the New Zealand Parliament is not, Edward, is it? Uh, the last
2: time we had a punch-up in the New Zealand Parliament wasn't actually that long ago. I think it was, I remember one of the guys in it, it was Trevor Mallard, who's a still an m p and someone else so but it wasn't in the in the chamber and it um it was more of a personal dispute from memory <laughs> but um I, I would say you know obviously people in Taiwan don't really like the fact when these images get broadcast around the world, as you say, but I think the bigger issue is actually domestic you know if you any of us that have caught a taxi and driven past the legis legislative sort of u n buildings, often your taxi driver will Wave dismissively at it, or scoff at, at, at it, and talk about Taiwanese politics in a um, in a negative sense. And if you look at things like the the voting um, turnouts in Taiwan, they, they've fallen quite substantially since the um, country. You know, had its first election. So I think the last election, the voting turnout was around sixty six percent, down from seventy six percent. So they're still in the in the mid range, but as uh, you know, on an international level. But certainly, people are disengaging locally with politics in Taiwan, which is you know not helpful for any democracy.
0: Do you think a lot of that's got to do with the the attitude of lawmakers in the legislative chamber?
2: Yeah, I think if you have a situation where people are, you know. Having fights in your parliament, it's pretty easy for people not to take it seriously and not to take those people seriously, you know, as politicians. So why would you get out and vote for someone if your if your two choices are people that are known to um, to get into fights rather than represent your issues um, in a you know in a, a in a way that is what you would expect of elected politicians.
0: But of course, Brian, this is not just one particular party doing this. It's the KMT causing the rumpus this time, but of course, in the past, the DPP were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It does seem
1: very entrenched into Taiwanese, uh, you know, legislative culture, which is kind of a very funny thing. I mean, I think that that just partly has to do with the fact that you know the two political parties just really do not like each other. You know, what prevents them from being a collegial spirit in part is because you know their worldviews are fundamentally opposing. You know, unification and independence as the main split in Taiwanese politics is. You know, means that in some sense there is no really common ground for speaking with you know the other side, and that that affects you know most you know single issues um, in terms of Taiwanese politics, but also just you know how the legislators relate to each other. Um, I think the result, though, is that yeah, as you know, as Ed mentioned, it does become a form of political theater in which you know it is a kind of strange but also you know scoffed at thing, and so that does discourage participation in politics. I mean, do you really want to run for office, for example, if you? might just be fighting with, you know, the KMT, you know, like a KMT legislature or on the other side with the DPP legislature. It's like that, is that the reason why you want to go into the legislature?
0: Right, What was also interesting, yesterday, in fact, Thursday of this week, the legislative speaker, Su Chun came out and he said, dangerous items will be banned from legislative meeting rooms from now on. And these, these dangerous items included whistles and air horns.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, you know, there's this long history of uh, bringing props into the legislature in order to cause a scene. I mean, that is it's not even just the fighting. It's I think that, you know, there's a history of grandstanding. If, if you bring a theatrical prop, they'll get you in the news. And, you know, we know the, the news in Taiwan can be sometimes just focus on these kind of, you know, sensationalist or, you know, what, what, what is kind of clickbaity. And so if you do something that you know, is very theatrical, that gets you attention. And so it's not just fighting. I think that, you know, it is how people conduct politics in that way.
0: Yeah, we had we had water balloons last week, of course.
1: Yeah,
2: look, someone obviously, <laughs> you know, this, this sounds like a, a silly thing to say, but someone should actually do something about this. Um, d- does Taiwan want to be the place that just gets laughed at because people are bringing water balloons you know, into parliament? We're in 2017. Uh, sure, Taiwan's a young democracy, but I think um, the standards have to improve. <laughs> and it's, it's obviously um, both parties are, are to blame. As Brian said, it's not just the KMT, it's the DPP as well.
0: Right, I'm sure we'll be reporting about more fights in the (coughs) Legislative UN in the coming weeks. Anyway, let's stay with politics, but let's move on to the KMT, which is refusing to pay 864 million NT in compensation for selling properties allegedly appropriated from the Japanese colonial government. Now, the party was ordered to pay the fine by the ill-gotten party Assets Settlement Committee last month for 458 properties which were later sold or expropriated. Now, payment was due on Monday of this week. Now, the committee has said that the KMT's failure to meet the deadline, and here's where we get the crux of this rather interesting part of the Assets Settlement Committee's charges against the KMT, that the party's assets could be completely frozen this time, and more interesting, well, the KMT chairperson could be banned from leaving Taiwan or even detained. Could we see this happening?
1: It'd be interesting if that were so. I mean, I think the question is whether the DPP wants to push it that far. I mean, the KMT party assets is the issue in which the DPP has taken a very strong stand against the KMT. And so, you know, it it remains remains to be seen whether the DPP wants to open itself up to the accusation of political persecution of the KMT, as you know, the KMT claims that the DPP is doing, um, if it, you know, does take such severe actions. But I mean, the KMT seems to be trying to draw a line in the sand here, you know, that it's not going to back up any further beyond a certain point.
0: Well, of course, it's not the first time the committee has tried to sanction the KMT. They tried before.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, so they've come out. Um, this was one of the initial, you know, big policy changes that the new administration under Tsai Ing-wen made early last, uh, mid last year, when they came out and said we're going to form this um, ill-gotten ill-gotten gains committee and we're basically going to take on the KMT for um, stealing from the Taiwanese people over the course of many decades. I think if you go back then there was a view that the KMT had a choice at the time. They could either sort of play along and say yep we made some mistakes and what they chose to do instead was they would fight it at every turn and this is from from what I can see seems to be a continuation of that. So the DPP under, under you know, the government under the, and the DPP have come out and said, we're, we're just going to continue with this process until the KMT has paid back for everything. And un, until that has, has happened, if the KMT continues mm-hmm. to fight it, they're just going to continue to find these sanctions and, and, and find themselves in, in legal battles.
0: Do you think anything will actually have come of this?
2: Hard to say. I mean, I think if we go back to some some of the moves that this committee itself has made, there seems to have been a pattern where they've come out with a, quite a strong measure and then perhaps softened it slightly. But I would assume that once these things start moving through the courts, then we'll start to see some decisions.
0: Right, Brian, I mean, could you see them banning Oudini from leaving the country or even basically detaining him? I think that'd be controversial
1: because I think that, you know, there's the history of, you know, past Taiwanese presidents being arrested or detained or, you know, leaders of political parties and so forth. So I think the DPP is is treading, you know, on, on very, very sensitive ground here, um, particularly, you know, seeing as Ma ying when he left office, he also faced charges too, you know, and Ma ying that that's thus resolved. But, you know, like, I, I kind of, I wonder, I mean, I, I don't have an answer, but I think that, you know, that might, you know, lead to some backlash against the DPP from society.
0: And do you think the DPP has to be careful here, of course, because was it was this could come back and bite them in the butt in a few years?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in the context that uh, new Taiwan administrations will often take legal action against the their predecessors, sure, but I don't think anyone would assume that the DPP is, has uh, the same <laughs> decades and decades of... Uh, of stealing from the from the Taiwan public as the KMT is alleged of having. Firstly, because they weren't in existence for quite a lot of that time, um, and and secondly, looking at their books, they don't have quite the same amount of money as the as the KMT has. So it's hard to it's hard to see these exact. Um, charges or these exact actions being replicated against the dpp but certainly if the you know if in the few years we have a kmt led government no one would be surprised to see them taking legal action against the dpp for some some sort of
1: thing Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the interesting thing is the KMT has adopted the strategy now of attempting to legally challenge the pension reform and, you know, to try to get it stopped through these kind of, you know, legal institutions. I mean, you know, there's the thing, uh, they want to stop it now through the controlled ring. And that, you know, will lead to kind of sorry uh, clashing between different parts of the Taiwanese government in a way that, you know, will be kind of hard to resolve. Um, the the KMT is is really, you know, they, they don't want to back on up from this beyond a certain point And, you know... They, they will grab onto what they can at this point, and I think that that might be a challenge for the DPP to overcome because you know there are a lot of a lot of loopholes in getting this thing through. I mean, society's response will be a different question, but yeah.
2: I, I just think that the DPP has, has shown here that they're, they're basically just going to go for the jugular with the KMT. Um, they're going to continue pushing the the asset, um, you know, after these ill gotten gains through this committee, which is a, a legal entity which gives them the avenue to do it and make it a sort of a government thing as a separate from a party-on-party party thing. And and looking ahead to the, you know, we've got local elections coming up, I think, in 2018, so next year, and this is where where it might start to really sting the KMT when local parties can't go to the central bodies for, um, for money to, to run campaigns and that kind of thing. And so who knows whether this will already start to make a really big impact and start to really hurt the KMT. Mm. I mean, the
1: interesting thing to me is that- between the three different ways the DPP is sort of targeting the KMT, you know, pension reform, um, the party assets, and transitional justice, this one is the one that they're pushing the furthest on. I mean, you know, pension reform, they kind of wavered a bit, but, you know, public polling seems to be indicating that they do have support, so they might go strengthen that. And transitional justice, you know, that, that's that been kind of, you know, they've made statements, but, you know, it's only been for 228 mostly, not the white terror as a whole. Um Yeah, so this does seem to be the one that the DPP is pushing on furthest.
0: Right, now shall we leave leave disputes now and leave them long behind and go to something a bit more uplifting? And that was that the global press freedom watchdog Reporters Without Borders launched its first Asia Bureau here in Taipei on Tuesday of this week. And I caught up with Taipei Bureau Director Cedric Alviani on Thursday, who, although in Seoul for business, made the time to chat about the new Bureau and what it means for Taiwan and East Asia. So, obviously, the Reporters Without Borders Bureau was launched here in Taipei this week. And what do you hope to bring to Taiwan and its journalists and its media with the, with the, with the office?
3: Yeah. So, you know, Reporters Without Borders is an international organization that is uh, advocating for and promoting press freedom and promoting freedom of information. We will cover not only Taiwan, but actually seven territories in the East Asia area, namely uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, mainland China, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, and Mongolia. The purpose, of course, is to get closer to the Asian audiences so that uh, we are able to uh, communicate in local languages to uh, talk about uh, Taiwan we have chosen to uh, open our bureau in Taiwan because uh, Taiwan is the freest place in the whole Asia in terms of freedom of press.
0: Right. Obviously, I've heard some people say um, possibly you could have picked Tokyo or even Seoul to, uh, to launch the bureau because maybe you, would, you could have got to meet more people, a wider range of people from the region in these areas.
3: We are actually currently uh, traveling uh, in order to also make a launch in Seoul and in Tokyo. But I must say that uh, Taiwan was a much easier place to set up the Bureau. Uh, Ta- although, although a lot of people uh, are not necessarily aware of it, but uh, Taipei has actually become a very international place. And I would say uh, logistics-wise, Taipei is a very convenient place to be able and communicate in the area.
0: Right. Have you got much much support from the Taiwan government for the office?
3: So, we do not want any official support from the Taiwan government because we are an independent association. And so we do not wish to uh, be polarized or to have uh, political support. However, we could feel that the Taiwanese authorities are extremely uh, helpful. Uh, and extremely happy that uh, the opening of our bureau uh, takes place in Taiwan. The, the, the Taiwanese authorities are extremely interested by the fact that we opened uh, our bureau in Taipei. Um, I believe for them it's a recognition of all the improvements that have been made since uh, the, the, the last three for the last three decades. For the Taiwanese authorities, of course, it's a recognition of uh, all the improvements that have been made in the past three decades.
0: Right, And what will you be doing? What will your office be doing in Taipei as a day-to-day business, basically? So your day-to-day operations? Yes. So,
3: yes, so we monitor uh, the seven uh, countries or uh, territories uh, in the East Asia area. Of course, our priority is what happens in China because... You know, in the past two decades, uh, the Western countries were trying to push China to open and to, uh, to, to uh, bring more freedom in, in society. It was obviously a failure, but now the problem is much bigger because China, uh, the Chinese authorities are trying to export their model. They are trying to change uh, the other countries by exporting the model of an authoritarian society and uh, you can feel it uh, regarding the uh, freedom of press, freedom of communication. So being based in Taipei is also a good way to monitor what's going on in China, because Taiwan has a lot of organizations researching uh, on China. Uh, Taiwan is hosting a lot of uh, persons that used to live in China that were uh, outfitted from China, uh, reporters, for example. So uh, Taiwan is a place where we can have a wide range of information sources uh, about what's going on in mainland China. This is uh, very important for us.
0: Right. What about specific issues in Taiwan? Which which issues you'll we'll be tackling here? Yes.
3: Yeah. So of course uh, we are also active on Taiwan, and we already uh, actually you know you know that two days ago we met uh, the President uh wen we also met the Minister of Foreign Affairs. We met, the um, focus of, uh, legislators, uh, dealing about human rights. Uh, and we insist that Taiwan still has a thought to make. Although number, being number 45 in the, uh, 2017 World Freedom Index made by RSF is already an achievement. It, yes, it's the best in Asia, but, um, there's, uh, there's, A lot of things that could be improved. For example, the Taiwanese journalists cannot write independently from uh, the management of their media. It's very difficult when you're a reporter to report anything that would be against the uh, commercial interest of the owner of the media. This is a situation we expect uh, the president and the government uh, are going to address.
0: So, Edward, that was Cedric there from Reporters Without Borders. I mean, what, did he say anything there that, that grabbed you? Well, firstly, I think it's, um, it
2: is a good thing that RSF has set up here. This was announced a wee while ago, and it made a few headlines because they said at the time that... They were really choosing between Hong Kong and, and Taiwan and had actually been closer to setting up an office in, in Hong Kong but then had decided for a number of issues including sort of I think s- security and, and you know future um, their future perceptions of what Hong Kong may sort of <laughs> the way Hong Kong may go around press freedom and things like that and that it was safer for them to be in in Taipei so that's a, a good sign for Taiwan. Also I think more broadly, Taiwan's trying to set itself up as a regional kind of NGO hub, a place that social enterprises and NGOs can set up. Um, obviously, it's it's becoming increasingly difficult for these organisations to be based in China. So yeah, RSF will be a good test case of whether a, a Chinese focused NGO can be based here. Um, obviously, they that will come with its own difficulties. They may find that access into, into China is is curtailed, but we have to wait and see the other thing I think what Cedric said was interesting there is that um, you know even though Taiwan has rated quite highly um, well Taiwan was the top place in Asia for a top country in Asia for press freedom it's still not actually perfect so Taiwan has some issues um, to to work through around its own press freedom things like you know the partisan media and as Cedric said writers not being able to sort of be free with their editorial um, positions so it's kind of like the same-sex marriage thing I think Um, just because Taiwan's the best place in Asia for a certain issue doesn't mean that it's actually that progressive on a uh, perhaps a more international playing field
1: I think that actually you know that off going off that point a lot of the you know Asia does not have a great you know record in terms of press freedoms i mean south korea and japan were other choices but you know they with the rise of you know the past administrations very right-wing leaning administrations you know both saw degradation of press freedom like severe degradations um as for you know the i mean this really does the fact that you know reporters about borders end up in, uh, in taiwan does indicate they have their sights on china so i do wonder you know whether they will engage with local coverage um you know there's the tendency um you know, there's a the tendency of writers based in Beijing to write about Taiwan, but I wonder if this just means that we're going to have writers in Taiwan that write about Beijing. Um, you know, that might be an issue. Um, it is a success for the Tsai administration, though. It did it did vow during uh, presidential elections that it was part of its cross-strait policy was to emphasize Taiwan as a hub for NGOs that were targeting China. And so, you know, I think this is something that Tsai can claim credit for, although this is only by virtue of the fact that press freedoms in China and Hong Kong are so bad. Um, just I think that you know she can leverage on this point, and I wonder if she will. Um, as you know a success of her foreign policy
0: and of course she did come out this week or right, yeah, a couple of weeks ago when she met the people from Reporters Without Borders and she said that it was a good thing they were here because it'll open the public's mind in Taiwan for the need for the freedom of the press I mean do you think the public actually knows what Reporters Without Borders is?
2: They, I mean, RSF is a fairly big international um, NGO. I guess people perhaps more familiar with um, Medicine Sans Frontier, which is you know uh, Doctors Without Borders, I guess, which is a similar organisation, also a, a, French, a France-based organisation. Um, I would say though that our RSF in Taiwan has been working really closely with a lot of local NGOs. Um, the sort of local media watch type NGOs is about half a dozen, and they're all actually going to be set up, um, as I understand it, in the same office, so working really closely with the local people. So I think even if um, Taiwanese aren't aware at this stage, they will become more aware of these issues.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely for Tsai to trumpet to the world. I think you know, similar to when the O'Shaughnessy died, she mentioned that you know Taiwan would take steps to help China achieve democracy, or that you know offering uh, Taiwan as a place where the O'Shaughnessy could seek medical treatment. And I wonder if she'll really just broadcast it that loudly. But yeah, she is definitely you know. Um, you know, made, made acknowledgement of, you know, that they, they did come to Taiwan. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think this is something to be celebrated, but, you know, we'll see going forward as to, you know, whether what the effect of, you know, reporters without borders is in, uh, in Taiwan, you know, if they can achieve their mission.
0: And we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. <laughs> Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin this part of the show with news of the former manager of a Hong Kong-based Causeway Bay Books, which you might have heard in the news uh, last year, well, he plans to reopen the shop in Taipei next year. Lam Wong Kai has been quoted as saying that the reopening is symbolic of the resistance against China, and the Taipei store will be sponsored by an anonymous Hong Kong democracy group. Now, of course, Lam visited Taiwan to attend the Taipei International Book Exhibition in February of this Year and at the time he denied reports that he had plans to reopen Causeway Bay books in Taiwan. However, he wasn't afforded the same landing rights as average Hong Kongers when he came, who can stay in Hong Kong, who escaped Taiwan rather, for up to three months. And when Lamb came here to visit Taiwan, he was only permitted to stay for 10 days. Now, Lamb also at the time said the government asked him to submit a report and itinerary for his entrance application and he has not been allowed to publicly announce his visit or talk about politics while here. Do you see someone who's being treated like this by the government um, being allowed to open a bookstore in Taiwan?
1: Mm. Um, I think the government is very concerned about harassment from, uh, you know, pro-China forces. I mean, this is on the rise with, uh, you know, when Joshua Wong is in, in Taipei usually. I mean, he usually has a large security detail for those visits. And, you know, I think the government is a worry of spending such resources in order to protect Causeway Bay books, which, you know, as a site that would be there is, is vulnerable to attack and would be so 24-7. Um, and so we'll see about that. I mean, that is definitely another thing that, you know, the government could use and, you know, as a way to further distinguish Taiwan from China or the current situation of Hong Kong. But, you know, also sometimes, sometimes the government, surprisingly, doesn't, maybe because of logistical concerns or, you know, um, this rising fear that, you know, a violent incident will happen involving somebody from Hong Kong that is quite high profile. And this will reflect negatively on Taiwan.
0: Do you think that's the case, Edward, or do you think Taipei will be more concerned about what Beijing could do? I'm uh, not,
2: not sure about that, whether they'll be overly concerned about what Beijing will do. But I would say that there's a, there is a bit of a – I don't know if it's a risk or just a, an underlying issue here with you know the Causeway Bay story, the Cause, Causeway Bay bookstore story when it broke in 2015, you know, five booksellers abducted from Hong Kong or, and, and Thailand to China. It was a major international story, so that will bring um, – International media coverage of this kind of issue, if if these guys do reopen in, in Taiwan, and I guess in one in one respect, it's any um, attention that is brought to the case of Guay Minhai, who was one of the booksellers, the guy that was abducted from Thailand and is still the only one of the five that is still detained in China, so anything that brings international attention to him is a is a good thing, but. The the bookstore itself, um, I, I think there's, um, Brian may hmm. disagree, I don't know, I think there's been a little bit of a misreporting around this, you know, they were, they've been sort of talked about as a bookstore that publishes material that's just critical of the CCP, and that's why the CCP cracked down, and that's not the whole story, you know, they also publish a lot of uh, what we might call sort of political <laughs> gossip books, and these are sort of books that... Um, aren't based on fact and that delve into sort of the private lives of the CCP um, leaders. So in that respect, I see a little bit of a risk and I think that that's probably where the Taiwan government will distance itself um, a little bit. They may not want to be seen as endorsing um, this bookstore and its
1: publications.
3: Mm,
2: do, you,
0: I, do you think they could be a target of such gossip, Brian, the Taiwan government?
1: Perhaps. I don't know. Actually, you know, it's funny because there was very tabloidy stuff during the uh, democracy movement. Uh, you know, sometimes... The the publication of the democracy movement in, in Taiwan sometimes printed very tabloidy material or, you know, pornographic material in order to, you know, get by, you know, taking advertising in, in that sense. Um, so, I don't know, there's this precedent of this in Taiwan even. Um, it is actually very funny because you know, just it is when when you do become a political victim in that way, you do take the moral high ground, and so it's been kind of forgotten that yeah, they put out you know books on the purported sex lives of Chinese leaders such as Xi Jinping or whoever. Um, I mean, I I wonder if the I I think they might hew away from that with the bookstore that they open up here in Taiwan because I think that's probably you know it's, it's better to stick to the moral high ground. But uh, that is that is another issue, and uh, you know, the bookstores that do exist and cover social issues in Taiwan, they are. I wonder how they would react to that if they uh, if they do put out those books. Uh, so,
2: yeah, and I, I just wonder whether they'll find the same market in, in Taiwan that they had in Hong Kong. You know, they, they served a pretty niche market of Chinese visitors in Hong Kong that were taking these books back to back into China, as I understand it. Um, you know, obviously, Taiwan's, as we've just talked about, has a pretty free press. People can already write and, and say basically whatever they like. So whether or not they'll find the same level of interest
1: in Taipei or in Taiwan would be another issue. Mm-hmm. I mean you know there there's definitely the Apple Daily which is also from Hong Kong I mean that that's the publication known for printing this kind of content um so I mean, yeah, it could be a difference in media culture. Even um, I, there's there's a different interest in the lives, the private lives, the purported secrets of of Chinese leaders in Taiwan. That's that's quite visible. But I think it's much more along the lines of you know their political backgrounds and you know who they're aligned with and you know all this kind of faction you know fa- these factions that are fighting it out behind the scenes and so forth.
0: Rather than who they're sleeping with. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, we should have to hold this space on the Causeway Bay books because we still don't know if it's going to happen or not. Of course. Anyway, we're going to turn to somewhere we rarely go on this show now and that's sports and the upcoming summer university ad games which will take place in taipei from august the 19th through august the 30th now taiwan doesn't get to host obviously many big international sporting events it hosts a few it had the world games it had the deaf olympics it had other events but when it does Much play is made of the island being invited to hold these events, however not big they are. But there's always something rather lacking, that being sporting fever. Have you been bitten by the university sporting bug, Edward?' I haven't,
2: but that's that's mainly because, unfortunately, my um, my office view is of this half completed Taipei Arena Stadium, <laughs> which is sort of um, a bit of a blight on the whole thing. But but what I what I would say is that um, firstly, you know, we should acknowledge that this is going to be a a really great event for for Taipei. I mean, twelve thousand athletes across sixty venues and the. Outside of some outside of Taipei, I'm sure the athletes will experience what those of us live here experience on a daily basis in terms of convenience and friendly locals. And I, I think also, you know, the fact that it's the largest ever event um, to be held of this kind to be held in Taiwan is, is, is really significant in um, a big financial injection for the for the city um, or for the area. 100 million, I think, has been spent on on new stadia and doing doing other um, other, sorry. I think a hundred million or so has been spent on on new stadia, and then also doing up existing um, places. But of course, the site there's going to be a sideshow, and that's this cross-strait issue, which mm-hmm. finds its way of getting into any story. And you know, already we've seen stories come out around the the stealth boycott, apparently, of Chinese oh, this athletes. Was, this
0: was this was the Chinese national team couldn't come here because apparently they had their national games the same time. But apparently, China has registered 110 individual athletes. Sort of like the Russians in the uh, at the moment have to register as individuals. Yeah, but the-, the doping thing. But this is obviously different because it's cross-strait affairs. I love the quote by Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe, though, who, when someone told him that 110 athletes are coming from China, oh, they're coming. Big headline news. They, they've boycotted it as a team, but individuals are coming. Taipei Mayor Kerwin Zhe, who is well known for some rather, um, doofus type off the wall comments, shall we say, turned around and simply said, oh, they may only be China's second string sports people. And he's organizing the university, of course. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I, do, I just think this is going to be a, um, a big side story and it's probably for a lot of publications it will be the one story that they run and it will certainly be the headline that they use around the world around uh, the fact that China hasn't sent its teams. As you say, they are sending hundreds of individual athletes, but the fact that they're not sending teams um, will be put into the context of the broader Chinese uh, approach to cross-strait relations at the moment and things like um, blocking Taiwan from international events like we've seen with the World Health Assembly and the International Aviation Organization Assembly and you know poaching Taiwan's dim- diplomatic allies and it will be put in that context and that's what we can expect from the international reporting which will be you know obviously a great shame given what a good event it's going to be here.
0: Have you been bitten by the sports bug Brian
1: um, not particularly I'm not really a sports person. I've just always struck that you know the advertising for this event took place so far in advance of the you know of the event. Um, attempt to drum up interest is something that Cohen just staked a huge amount of political capital on, you know even damaging his reputation severely to try to you know lure over chinese participation. I mean for example, you know he's been trying to drum up participation in Taipei for well over a year. I mean it's in every MRT station you just see this countdown to the Taipei Olympiad, and you know I think it is an event that a lot of people actually. You know, it is, it's a huge event for high school level and college level students, but, you know, not a lot of people actually did know about, you know, what it, it's not an event that has a name brand recognition, and Co. really wanted to build that. Um, so I think what is, is to be seen is, you know, what is his strategy here in in regards to China? Because he's put a lot of political capital on it. He's been criticized for having made vaguely or, you know, incriminating statements um, to try to, you know, make sure China participates. So what does he want to do in terms of putting Taiwan and Taipei on the world stage? Um, that's, that's, that could, you know, potentially have blowback severe blowback against him if this doesn't really go well um and yeah i do think that international coverage will focus on on the issue of china because you know that is taiwan always gets reported on that in terms of uh you know it's always it always is in connection with china and you know i i do wonder um as to, you know, how the event will come together, though, because, you know, just there is a lot of issues with with uh, criticism of the, you know, internal corruption in regards to choosing athletes or even just construction of the you know, buildings for the event and so forth. And so if, you know, if Taiwan doesn't put on a good face, that could also be damaging.
0: Hey, what's a sporting event on the international scene without a bit of controversy? Let's face it. <laughs> anyway, you were talking about the you're talking about the MRT there, Brian. And of course, so far, while the university ad hasn't actually made much news internationally. Something they did with the MRT in Taipei did make international news, because you might have seen the photographs. Now, Taipei City authorities collaborated with the Easy Card Corporation, which is the swipe card you use to pay for buses and MRT, subway, underground trains here in Taipei. Now, on-floor installations designed in various sports venue themes are basically scattered across the carriages. Now, these these are embellished with a swimming pool, which is my favourite one, a soccer field, a basketball court, a running track, and several others. And each of the hanging handrails is also decorated with a Taipei University Ad rules logo, and there's also a bit of information about every sport there. Have you been on, you've seen the MRT trains then?
2: I've seen the photo of them, I haven't actually seen the, been on one, but they, they <laughs> (laughs) do look cool i i think you know and we have sort of said that people we're we're painting a picture here that people aren't really interested yet i mean still still a month to go my guess would be that you know these events have a habit of building their own kind of inertia and that people once you have you know tens of thousands of um people all of a sudden in taiwan for a couple of weeks people will really get behind it and and those kind of things are, are quite a cool pr little measure to to get people's um, interest
1: peaking a little bit
0: yeah but you've seen the mrt trains
1: i haven't in person yet but maybe i will at some point we're a bunch, um, of,
0: we're a bunch of slackers <laughs> this is what happens when you put three people who take too many taxis in a studio <laughs> together
1: <laughs> or buses um Yeah, the thing is that advertising for the the event has been in quite good. I mean, it's received a lot of praise in terms of the video that's come out of it, uh, video advertisements or you know this MRT advertising, uh, you know, very inventive advertising, and you know that does continue the fact that Co rode into office on a very well designed, very you know aesthetically appealing campaign as something to reach out to young people um, in terms of translating into, you know, actual uh, bringing numbers to the games. We'll see. But that, that, that has succeeded in getting international attention.
0: Yeah, as Edward, Prent, you mentioned the photographs, They're actually incredible photographs, yeah? Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the swimming pool, The swimming pool in the MRT carriage, if you lie down in it and you can pretend to swim, and if a photograph is taken from above you, it actually looks like you're in a swimming pool.
2: Yeah, I think they've got these a lot of things like this, which um, are pretty cool. And like I said, you know, the international visitors will will love Taipei and will love Taiwan. So it's just a matter of um, them then broadcasting that outside of Taiwan, and that that will be their challenge.
0: And of course, there's the song as well. It's got a theme. Have you heard the theme tune?
1: No, I have not actually.
0: Have you heard the theme tune? No, I haven't. Oh, this is great. You are from New Zealand. You're meant to be sporty.
2: Well, that, what's that got to do with the the theme music?
0: All right you're you meant to know about sports Edward. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's shift gear there and move on to our final piece for today's show. And the National Space Organization's former SAT-5 satellite has arrived in the United States ahead of its August. Well, we have a debate here. Some publications have said August the 25th, other publications have said August the 24th. But it will be launched from the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. Now, this is Taiwan's first domestically developed and manufactured satellite and will be sent into space by a Falcon 9 rocket supplied by SpaceX. now the former sat 5 took six years to build it cost 5.7 billion nt and it's going to carry out atmospheric and ionospheric profiling work up there which will be used to develop a weather model in space monitor changes in plasma turbulence and search for potential changes in the ionosphere before earthquakes so edward complete made in taiwan object circling the earth
2: yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of space in general and uh, space exploration and anything up there. So I think it's a um, it's a cool thing for Taiwan to be involved with. Um, I was having a, a little bit of a read about this. I hadn't realized that information from Taiwan's satellites that have you know are, are already been there um were quite crucial after the uh, two thousand and eight uh, Sichuan earthquake in China in terms of providing information to the Chinese around potential flood areas and potential um you know landslides and other areas that may be uh, prone to to you know bigger natural disasters and, and then again, after the two thousand and eleven um, tsunami and earthquake in Japan, they again provided key, uh, key information to the Japanese around that so seems like a pretty critical piece of, um, of infrastructure up there and, and great for Taiwan to, to be involved the other other little sort of side story with this is that it's actually a really good example of where Taiwan and the u.s collaborate um, you know hundreds of millions of dollars go into these programs as a as a whole and um, they're basically as I understand them pretty much joint ventures in terms of the technology and the deployment between the states uh, the United States and Taiwan so any area that Taiwan can partner itself commercially or at a government to government Government level with the U.S. in particular, it's pretty good for its um, its positioning on the international stage.
1: I mean, the interesting thing for me is that domestic uh, countries, you know, that launch domestic satellites or, you know, other objects into space, this is like usually, you know, this is something that people do to try, countries do to try to put themselves on the world stage, you know, to show that they've reached a level of technological advancement, they can do this. And, you know, major countries or major economies such as, you know, India or Japan, this is a really big deal. And so for a small country, which does not have a lot of international recognition, such as Taiwan to do that, that's also a big deal. Um, I mean, just the space industry is very resource intensive, as you know, you can see with the cost of a satellite. And, you know, space is usually not one of the, you know, things... Although, technolo- although Taiwan has a reputation as a technologically advanced country um, in terms of computers and, you know, microchips and so forth, you know, space is not really up there. I mean, you know, Taiwan does have a very... Uh, an effort to put satellites into space that has been ongoing, but, you know, it is something that has not actually advertised that often, I feel like. So I wonder if, if, if this will be something that, you know, that people will jump onto afterwards, you know, that Taiwan can do this, that Taiwan produced, you know, a satellite on its own. Because
0: um, it's produced pieces for other people's satellites of course over the years
1: yeah and i think this one if i
2: understand it correctly is getting transported to the us to be deployed or launched by spacex right SpaceX, so,
0: of course, yeah. so will it or won't it <laughs> yeah, i mean that's, there's a question well, there. let's hire spacex to launch it i, I uh, think
2: okay. it, i think it's been delayed uh by about a year anyway i don't know if that's related to the um Technical issues, should we say, that SpaceX has has come across, but um, yeah, these are international projects, and mm. like I said, it's a, it's a Taiwan US collaboration, so it's a um, these things, even though the whole thing was made in Taiwan, and, and I think they're leveraging off you know high tech electronics and the chip manufacturing sector and semi, semiconductor sectors and things like that. So again, pretty good for pretty good for Taiwan to be um, involved in this space. Mm.
0: right and if you want to learn more about the former sat-5 satellite you can check out the april 18th 2016 taiwan talk podcast when keith menconi interviewed Jungwei Sheng, the director of taiwan's national space organization and that's where we'll leave it this week here on taiwan this week and i've been joined in the studio today by brian Hugh of new bloom good night and edward white of the Lens. thank you good night Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it
3: here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.